Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I felt my heart really stirred over something, and uh, and I just just bear with me, just kind of different thoughts going on internally, but I, I feel really, really moved by this, um, by just what we're about to get into today. And, uh, and if you've been with us really from the summertime, th- there's been a heavy emphasis, I, I believe it's God's emphasis on, on revival. And we've been really talking about getting vision for that and what that looks like. And I know a lot of times that could be a buzzword, but, but I really feel stirring and so many do that we're on the brink of something incredible in this nation. And a lot of it, I think, has to deal with just how bleak things look right now, but those are incredible um, moments in history for God to show up. And, uh, and I, I just I want to share a scripture here that I feel gives some, some vision for what revival looks like. It's not what we're really talking about. I just want us to, to, this to lead us today, and then there's something specific on my heart that I feel as a shepherd to, to put before us as we continue to press in for God to move mightily. So this is Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 11. You know, we talk about revival. We're talking about the presence of Jesus ultimately coming in in a unique and powerful way, right? We're talking about the works and words of Jesus. They begin to manifest in a very pronounced manner. And Isaiah 60 is ultimately a, a prophecy of future glory. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the answer of this prophecy. He's the fulfillment of it. And he brought it in the first time he came. But there's a second time he's coming where we'll see it in its fullness, But in between the first and the second coming, I believe there's waves of Isaiah 60 that we're going to see. And I believe we're living in it right now. And Isaiah 60 verse 1 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Verse 2, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And finally, verse 3, And nations shall come to you, your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Isaiah 60 says that in the midst of great thick darkness upon the people, that in that moment a great light will begin to shine upon the people. The glory of the Lord will come upon the people. And there's just this interesting theme that you see throughout the Bible and you've seen throughout church history that when it seems like it's the darkest, bleakest moment, when it seems like all hope is lost, it always provides a unique platform and opportunity for the glory of the Lord to shine brightly upon his people. It's, it's the tension that we spoke about of crisis and glory that always go hand in hand. And there's something stirring in all of our hearts here that as we look at the landscape of our nation, we need to hear what the Father's speaking because I know what we're seeing in the natural, but I believe the church is being primed for another incredible awakening. Amen. Seriously, another incredible awakening where the glory of the Lord comes upon a people. And, and listen, th- this is really important. Look what it says in verse 3. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. When we talk about revival, we are not talking about a first-time visitor trickling in here and there. <laughs> We're not talking about an extra service on a Sunday. We're not talking about an extra hour to our services. We're talking about God's glory resting upon a people that the nations literally begin to be drawn to it. That people begin to see what is happening and say, I want to understand, even if I don't understand, I want to encounter what God is doing in this house. And so we've talked a lot about that. Our hearts are primed to say, Lord, we want the glory of the Lord. We want your light to shine again, God, that the nations would begin to come, not for our sake, but for your sake, Lord. And so I share that because I believe every person that has been born again of the Spirit has a longing for this in their heart. Because the Spirit of God in you testifies that you were made for this. And our hearts will never be satisfied for for the, the human systems that we create in church. Our hearts long to see his glory rest upon a people. Our hearts long to see the Spirit of God move so mightily that addictions get driven out. Families get restored. There's something in us that just says, this is what I was made for. And when we begin to taste it, something inside of us awakens and says, I was born for this. I was born for this. The reason why when God saved me and didn't snatch me out of this world right after I was saved was for this right here. That I was bringing his kingdom as well. But what's, what's been stirring on my heart, let me put it this way. There's a lot of different ways that you can 
I feel when I speak that there's different tones, if you will. Uh, sometimes it feels like it's more teaching and equipping. Sometimes it can feel more like it's, it's prophetic. It's telling us where we're going, like with the house of prayer. And then uh, other times I feel a real pastoral burden. And, and um, all of those get mixed up every message, but some take a more dominant, dominant like lead role. And I feel that pastoral burden today. Um, I, I just pray the Lord help me to communicate this. Because when we're crying out for this Isaiah 60, right, uh, there is a price that comes with that revival. There is a serious price that comes with that. And, and I, let me be real clear. The prize far outweighs the price. The prize far outweighs the price. And when I talk about price, I'm not talking about prayer. We need to pray. But prayer, pray, praying is not a price. <laughs> Jesus paid the price so that we could come in. We get the privilege of being able to connect with our God again. That's a privilege. But when I talk about price, when we start to press in for God to move, I feel specifically what the Lord's putting in my heart is that there is a tremendous amount of resistance that comes, but it is not a general resistance that we would often say it's, it's quote-unquote those that are unbelievers. Actually, where it comes is first and foremost from the established church. What you first see happen when the Spirit of God moves is the spirit of religion begins to rise up always. And I feel such a shepherd's heart that if we are crying out for the glory of God to come, that our hearts need to be prepared, that the precedent has always been when the Spirit of God moves, the religious spirit rises up to quench it. The religious spirit is built on a system where God is both impersonal and powerless. And when God starts coming in a personal way and a powerful way, it does something. And I really, I don't want to lose a single person here. And when we start sharing testimonies of God delivering, saving, healing, I want you to know that there is going to, it's going to shake up a lot of stuff. And if they did it to Jesus, they'll do it to us. If they said he moved by the power of demonic spirit, what do you think they'll do to us? And this isn't like an us versus them, but it's preparing our hearts to say, Lord, whatever the cost, whatever it looks like, we're going to go in for this thing. Lord, I will give my life over to this. And if our names become a laughing stock in this world, but you get glorified, then so be it. Then so be it. And, uh, man, I just, I, I just uh, yeah, so I want to share something from the book of Acts. Uh, really, you can call it whatever you want, paying the price for revival, but specifically about being faithful when this thing begins to rise up and just continue what the Lord has. So if you would, turn with me to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 7. Some of you who are in the Acts study are like, no way. We just went through this line by line, right, Christy? Uh, we are not going through it like that again, so don't worry. Uh, but there is a few things I want to share. So if you could turn with me to Acts, Acts chapter 7. And again, just bear with me. I'm just going to share some things as it flows. Um, but I, I really felt the Lord in this. I try my best just to be faithful to what God brings up. And um, all I know is I just hear the Lord saying, Andrew, if you, if you commit to this, really, if you commit all the way with this, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for what, what will happen, what will come against? Are you ready to give it all? And I, I, all I know is, Lord, I need your grace for that. And we need his grace. I feel the Lord is going to destroy the fear of man this morning. The fear of man. The fear of man. The fear of God replaces the fear of man. We begin to tremble at his words and not what man says. The fear of God has to hit us so that when, the, when man comes and mocks and makes fun, we stay steadfast to what the Lord has. So at Acts chapter 7. Well, let me, say, let me back up for a moment. If you've never read the book of Acts... Here's, like, here's where we're at in chapter 7. Up until this point, Acts history is our history. Do you know that? It's the history of the church. And so a lot of times when, if someone were to say, how long has your church been around? We may say three years because we're talking about home church. But actually, we could say 2,000 years. This is our history right here, and we need to know our history. Because a lot of times, we can actually look to the previous generation rather than to the original source. And what happens is we can really drift from what the actual calling was. And so when we look at the book of Acts, we see the Spirit of God poured out, and we begin to see the church rapid explosion. I mean, growth that's incredible. In three years, by the time we're in chapter 7, it's been three years since Pentecost. And you know what's happened? The church, starting in an upper room of 120, has grown to about 20,000. I mean, you're talking about multiplication, exponential growth. The kingdom of God is moving. Powerful things are taking place. Salvations, healings, deliverance. Uh, there is purity and power moving in this body. One of my favorite stories is Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John come and heal a lame man outside a temple. You guys know this story? 
40 plus years or so, this man has been lame, carried every day to the temple. Peter and John come and they give the famous quote, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. The man gets up and walks. But what I love is that Luke goes on to testify that the man left. It's really interesting. He, he mentions this a few times, that he left. Why? Well, to show the joy that this man has been you know, delivered from brokenness? Of course. Is it to show the, the, the completion of his miracle? That he didn't just limp through the rest of his life, he actually was leaping? Of course. But Luke is tying this to a prophecy about when the Messiah would come. In Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, it says that when the Messiah comes and the Messianic era comes upon us, here's how you know. The blind eyes will be opened, the deaf ears will hear, and the lame will leap like deers. And so when Luke says the lame is leaping over and over, what he's trying to say is, guys, it's here. The Messianic age has come. Everything we long for, it's right here, right now. We know there's a future hope coming, but it's already upon us. Why am I sharing that? Because you would think that everyone would be excited about this. <laughs> you would think to see God's kingdom on earth and the Holy Spirit moving, everyone would be thrilled. But what you begin to find is that as the Spirit of God is moving, there is wave after wave of persecution against the church. And it is not coming from Rome. It's not Rome yet. Where it first comes is from the religious people. That's where it first starts. And in Acts 7, Stephen gets put on trial by the people of God. And they say, you blaspheme Moses, you blaspheme the law, you blaspheme the temple, and ultimately you blaspheme God. And Stephen goes on this crazy sermon where he begins to actually flip the script and say, no, actually, the history has always been the opposite. God has always sent divinely appointed deliverers and saviors like Joseph in Egypt, like Moses in the wilderness, and you've always resisted him. And finally, he comes to this verse, Acts 7.51. If you were to say, like, how would you sum up this opposition to the move of God? Here's, I believe, like, this is one of the great summary statements. Acts 7, verse 51 Stephen, right before he's stoned and becomes the first martyr, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now that text we like to preach to those that are living in outright rebellion to God. And there's a measure where I, that applies, I understand that. But that's not the context here. He's not talking to those who have denied Jesus their whole life. He's talking to those who uphold the Torah, the Word. They know the Word in and out. They go faithfully to the temple every week. They attend church every single week. He's talking to those who, who are claimed to be the people of God. It is those that he says, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. He says, you're uncircumcised in your heart and ears. In other words, you're circumcised in your flesh, but your heart's not circumcised. You have an appearance you have an appearance of following after God, but your heart is actually far from him. You have always resisted the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You have always come against him. Guys, I, I believe like so deeply in my heart, this thing will rise up against us. It really will. As the more we proclaim and say, God, we're going for this, this spirit always begins to get agitated when the Holy Spirit begins to move. Yes. And what, what Stephen is saying is, the religious spirit has always and will always resist the Holy Spirit. It wants to control it. It wants to be able to de clearly define it. It wants to ultimately say, Lord, we want you, but you have to come under our leadership. And, 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 and this has always been the, guys, this has always been the precedent. Do you know throughout, go to the Old Testament, that's what Stephen's saying. This has been the precedent. You go into the life of Jesus, it oh, it's, was the precedent in his day. If you go throughout church history and revivals and moves of God, it has always been the precedent. We look at the Reformation period. We love to hear about Martin Luther and John Calvin. We celebrate these men, but do you know what, what these men went through? And do you know who persecuted them the worst? The established Catholic Church at the time, which was the church. Go to the Great Awakenings of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. We love to talk about these, the open fields. Literally, America is being revived open fields, people are coming out, salvation, the power of God is moving. Do you know how much these men were hated by the church? The local church, the local churches hated them. They said they're fanatical, they're heretical, they're, they demonize them. George Whitfield had men that would follow him from within the church and just yell the whole time he preached. 
This has always been it. Charles Finney. We love Charles Finney. He's considered one of the greatest revivalists, right? Everyone loves to hear stories about him. Do you guys, but everyone, if, how many know Charles Finney? How many of you heard the word Charles Finney, right? Many hands go up. How many of you have heard the name John Nevin? Caesar. Great. Now it's over. No. Caesar would know. John Nevin. You know, what's interesting, though, is in the day of Charles Finney, John Nevin was just as popular. What was John Nevin? He started a group that was one of the fiercest opponents against Charles Finney and what God was doing. But today, who talks about John Nevin? No one. Why? Because history does not treat the critics of revival well. But in the day, it seemed as if both were rising in the same, same popularity. But as history goes on, we actually find out that it was the ones that pressed into the move of God. Guys, we, if we go for this, this is, this is the truth of God's word. If we go for this in our generation, we may never see what it would really look like until years from now and they look back and say, wow, look what God did there. In our generation, your name will get dragged through the mud. You'll be deemed heretical. You'll be deemed this if you actually press in to have God's spirit move. They did this. This is the precedent in the Old Testament. It's what Stephen's saying. Uh, Saul. Do you know that Saul, the king of Israel, when they were united, Saul spent his entire, basically his entire time as the king of Israel fighting the wrong enemy? He came after David because he saw the anointing on David's life. He saw the call of God on David's life. And rather than fighting the right enemy, he fought, he fought the kingdom of God within because of jealousy and insecurity. David, we love David's tabernacle. It's such a huge part of what we're doing. David caught a vision that God's deepest desire is for heaven and earth to become one and for God to dwell on earth, Revelation 21. David caught it long before Revelation 21. And David said, I'm going to go do whatever it takes to create a resting place on earth for God. And he created the tabernacle. And in this place, incredible things took place. But he wanted a space in his city where God would ultimately rest in a unique way and the power and presence of God would manifest here. And ultimately, David became a pioneer for revival in his generation and generations to come. When Israel would fall, they would go back to what David had would instituted in the tabernacle. We come on this side and we look at David and say, that's amazing. But do you know what David went through? <laughs> Read Psalm 69, verses 8 through 12. David's family disowned him. David, David expresses what he had to go through, the cost of setting up this tabernacle, which ultimately became the source of revival. His own brothers disowned him and treated him as an alien. They said he's out of his mind. When he would fast, they said it's crazy. But David wasn't content with the status quo. When everyone else was okay to go through life, David's heart burned for something else. He said, I want to see God move. And David gave everything. He became a laughingstock among the politicians in his day. It said he became a byword even in the taverns. The drunkards mocked the life of David. <laughs> this, is, this is the people of God that came against him. And, of course, it's the precedent in Jesus' day. It's always been this. When the Holy Spirit moves, the religious spirit comes against it. This never ceases to amaze me. And I don't know if you've read it, but Jesus, the Son of Man in Luke chapter 11, when he healed a man who was mute, and delivered him from demonic oppression. Do you know what the religious leader said to him? They said this man operates in a demonic spirit. Can you imagine that? The son of man setting the captives free, bringing his kingdom on earth, the very thing that all the prophets testified to. And when he did it, the so-called people of God said he does this by a demonic spirit. He does this by Beelzebul, which is not just any demon, it's the prince of demons. Meaning the prince of peace was accused of being the prince of demons. Like, sometimes I read that, and then my heart just gets wrecked by that again. And I say, wow, the cost of really following after Jesus, I mean, really going for it, and what comes? The Canaanite gods, that, that, that was the name for the Canaanite god, Beelzebul. It wasn't, in, in Jesus' day, it wasn't just a name of a false worship. It was actually a mockery term as well. They were mocking him. And Jesus would go on to say, he said, listen, he's so serious about this. He said, you can blaspheme the Son of Man. And you'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven. Now, that's a whole topic worth in itself. But what they were doing is that they were, they were attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the works of the devil. The very means, the power that brought about the, the first creation is now bringing about the new creation. It's the Spirit of God, again, hovering over this earth and bringing about new heavens, new earth, new life. And the very Spirit that brings people into the kingdom and is establishing the kingdom, they were coming against it. It's a really scary time when we have more faith for Satan to work in the supernatural than God himself. 
But we're in a time when when God moves, everything's demonic now. Now, is there false stuff? Of course. And actually, I feel maybe, maybe we need to do another teaching on that soon of how we discern that. There, of course, there's false. And he wants to do that so we throw the whole thing out. That's the work of the enemy so that we just say forget the whole thing. Yeah. We can't do that. We've got to pastor through that and as a body work through that. Yes. But it's scary when now today God moves, when, when there's stuff that's happening in the supernatural and the first thought is it must be Satan. For our God no longer speaks. He no longer moves. He no longer does any of that. Satan has power, but not God. Yeah. Could it be, could it be that God withholds like crazy moves of God pouring out of the Holy Spirit again? In mercy, because he knows if he poured it out, everyone would blaspheme the spirit and say it's demonic. Could it be that God in his mercy says, first, the religious spirit has to be purged so that when the spirit of God moves mightily again, you won't claim it to be something demonic. Actually, in his protection for us, he says, I'm going to withhold until this thing gets purged. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is the other verse I wanted to read. Are you guys following me? Yes. I promise you I'm filled with joy, <laughs> and I'm really encouraged. <laughs> but I did feel this burden because I've seen, I've seen it at work, and I've seen it rearing its head again. And I see, like, when God's just moving, voices start coming in. I see people getting pulled out. The reason why, you know what, Jesus, his zeal never burns so strong than when this spirit rises up. You want to see him speak strongly? Look how he speaks to the religious leaders because he says, you don't enter it and you prevent other people from entering it. He he does not play around with that, right? So Acts Acts chapter 2, I want to read two verses to you, uh, but I think this is really, really important. I want you to just catch the significance of what's happening here, and then I'll read these two verses. But this is where the Spirit of God is first poured out, okay? Um, To catch the significance of what's taking place, in the first few verses, when the Holy Spirit's poured out at Pentecost in the upper room with 120, you have to keep in mind that right before our eyes, we're watching a shift in dispensations. We're literally watching one old order pass away and a new order come. In just a few verses, you see everything that was established according to the Old Testament, meaning sacrificial system with animals and the priesthood, all of that has now been fulfilled in Jesus, and it's all changing right before our eyes. It's an incredible moment. When Peter gets touched by the Spirit and stands up and prophesies and speaks to the crowd, he quotes Joel. The reality is is he could have quoted a number of prophets. He could have quoted Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, because all of them have a place where they testify to the glorious day when God will fill man with his own spirit. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures is 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11, where Peter says concerning this salvation of Christ, he says, the prophets long ago searched diligently... They searched diligently for the man, for the time, for the man and the place of which it would happen when the Christ would suffer and the subsequent glories would follow. So when Peter stands up and quotes Joel, he's saying, guys, the time of searching is over. It's come. We know who he is now. It's Jesus. And once again, you would think that every heart would be burning for the fact that every, what every prophet longed for is here. The Spirit of God has been poured out. But that's not what you find. When the Spirit of the Lord is released, and it's the greatest move of God that we've ever seen, it's the move that starts all other moves. When the Spirit of God has poured out these men's tongues of fire fall on them, and they begin to speak in other languages known to their own language, earthly languages, but they spoke in languages they never memorized. And when the crowds who were there to worship God, they were there to worship God, when they heard these other voices, there was a mixture of responses, and I want you to hear this. Verse 12. I'm in Acts chapter 2, verse 12. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So when they saw the Spirit of God come, they'd been praying for 10 days for this in the upper room. When the Spirit of God moves, many were amazed. Some were perplexed, saying, This is confusing. I don't fully understand this. But then verse 13 gives us another side of the coin. But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Can you imagine this? The time of searching is over. The Holy Spirit is being poured out in their midst. The move that would be the mark the last days. All of these people are in this room and have access to it. And many walked away because when they saw it, they mocked it. They mocked it. Even though they were there to worship God, they missed God moving in their midst. This, this right here, this is the key ingredients to every revival. I've been like just bent on studying things. Uh, revival Fires is an amazing book. 
when you go through revival, here's what you see. God comes, he moves mightily, and these are the responses you have. Amazement on one side, the other side is mockery, and in the middle there's a group that's confused, not sure which way to go. <laughs> and what you find is that every move of God has a measure of offense built into it. Every move of God gives us a reason, another reason to get offended. Every move of God comes with some aspect where we realize he's not a God that we can fit into our perfect paradigm. He comes in different ways, and we've got to have a heart that says, Lord, even though I don't understand this, I don't get exactly what's going on, but I am so hungry, and I'm not going to let that keep me out. You go through any revival, any revival, there's always something offensive. You go through um, the Catholic renewal. God was moving mightily, right? My grandfather was aware of that, moving mightily amongst the Catholics not too long ago. Do you know the Protestants, this would be us, got really offended? We said, how can that be? I thought they worship idols. But God's moving in their midst, and he's authenticating his movement by the Spirit of God in there. And many miss out because they couldn't fully understand it. It's really easy to pray, come Holy Spirit, but come on our terms. Holy Spirit, we want revival. And then he comes and says, wait a minute, that's different than what I thought. That's not what I always, what I always thought it would look like. Come Holy Spirit, but as long as you come in a way of which we've always done things. Come Holy Spirit, as long as you don't trump our traditions. Come Holy Spirit, as long as it's socially acceptable. And it's easy to move, miss a move of God because when God comes, he's just bigger than that, guys. He's an infinite God. And when he comes into these finite spaces, we start realizing there's facets of God we did not recognize. And I don't want any of us to miss what's happening or be turned off when mockery comes because of how God's moving. It's a dangerous mindset. Here's what I think is happening here. It's a dangerous mindset that when God begins to move, we reject it because he's never moved in our life like that. We've never spoken in tongues, so this can't be of God, right? That's what's happening here. It's a really arrogant position to say, and I've been here, when God starts moving in a powerful way to say, I don't believe this is God because if God would have moved this way, he would have first done it in me. As if to say, I am the standard of how God moves. And if God is going to do something, he'd first let me know before he does it in this public place. <laughs> but that's what happens. Things start happening. We say, wait a minute. He's never encountered me this way. Therefore, I'm going to say this is not of the Lord. Does this mean we let anything go? Of course not. There's a biblical precedence of what we have. But I will say this. There are times when God moves. When God moves, especially in these outpourings, where there's a lot of activity. I'm going to share a testimony before we end of a revival in China. A lot of stuff begins to take place, and we need to just say, Lord, my heart, my heart is hungry. <laughs> I, we, don't want to, we don't want to snuff that out with control. And we don't want to be turned off because others are mocking it. There's a man by the name of Blaise Pascal. He was a, a 17th century mathematician, many things that he was. But he was also a devout Catholic. And he was sharing a, a verse, or I'm sorry, just a, a statement on, on God. And uh, I think it applies especially to when you have these outpourings in revival. And he said this. When God moves, he says, there is enough light for those who desire to see. And there is enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. Let, let me say that again. When God moves, he says, there is enough light for those who desire to see. And there is enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. So when God moves... And he starts breaking up some of the things we have. There's enough light there for us to say, to not get offended by what he's doing. But there's also enough obscurity that if we're not careful, we can dismiss and say, I'm done with this. Because I don't fully understand it. But let me show you this scripturally. Doesn't Philippians 4, 7, that God gives us a peace that surpasses understanding? The word surpasses doesn't mean to like pass by. Like you drive and pass by in the lane. Surpasses actually means to be exalted above. To actually take such a high position that you're actually operating in governmental authority. So peace can actually surpass, be exalted, and govern over your understanding. How many want the peace that surpasses understanding? But then you know what that means? Sometimes we have to give up the right to understand. And sometimes I don't have the peace that surpasses understanding because I want to understand everything. And God says, this is not for you to understand. This is so this is not a call against intellect, wisdom, and reason. Those are biblical things we teach about them. But what it is saying is that when God moves, many times a surrendered heart will take us further than those things. Many times it's actually, actually understanding comes after we've said yes. 
sometimes we'll never have understanding or sometimes we get understanding after we said, I don't get this, but okay, Lord, I'm so hungry for this and I'm not going to miss out. You know what amazes me in this text is that no one mocked the disciples when they were praying in the upper room. It's only when God did the very thing they were praying for. Everyone, you tell everyone we're praying for a move of God. Amen, Pastor. We're behind that. We love that. Then God shows up, and we say, hold on. <laughs> hold on. That's different. You're praying for the concept of God moving. We love that. God actually moving in a way that we didn't expect. Now that's, that's an issue. <laughs> we love the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, we'll pray for that, except when his kingdom comes. <laughs> And we realize we're just a small, itty-bitty part of that kingdom. <laughs> and we have to say, God, okay, I'm all in. I'm all in. Share with me real quick the Proverbs, please. I want to share two other verses and then finish out with a, a short testimony. There's two verses I want to share. Uh, these are Proverbs is the wisdom writings. So these are principles that we can apply to a lot of areas of life. I probably would not uh, look at these as, as revival or outpouring text, but there's principles in here that I think really apply to when God moves. And there's a lot of wisdom on these. So Proverbs 14.4. I'm sorry if I didn't tell you that. Proverbs 14.4. Let me share these two verses, and then I'll close with a testimony. Proverbs 14.4. This is what it says. I'm reading out of ESV. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what is this saying? This says we've got to make a decision. You can get rid of the oxen, and your barn will be nice and neat. It'll be, it'll be nice and neat and tidy, orderly. You'll have it exactly the way you want it, everything in the proper place that you want but here's the problem, is that oxen are necessary to have an abundance of crops. In other words, oxen are necessary to have a great harvest. And what this is saying is we have to make a choice. Either you can have a great harvest, but the issue is you're going to need oxen. If you have oxen, the barn's going to get a little dirty. Or you can have a squeaky clean barn, but not have harvest. See, there's a point where we actually have to be willing to say, God, we're willing for things to get a little messy. Yeah. We have to. Guys, when Jesus walked around, it was messy. Crowds followed him for all different reasons. Why? Because he was Isaiah 60 among them, the light shining in the midst of darkness. And people came for all different reasons. Some of them didn't know. Some of them just wanted to see miracles take place. Others really wanted to follow him. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a net that goes out. And it catches a, a, a tremendous amount of fish, all kinds, some good, some bad. He says, but they'll be sorted out in the end. Meaning if we're going to see a great abundance of harvest, in that there's going to be all different stuff that takes place. And we need to be okay to like, work through that stuff and not shut it down because it, it can get messy at times. We need to give room for that. Uh, I shared before, again, maybe, maybe we do need to share it next week. But, but what, one of the things I've noticed in uh, reading about revivals is that when God moves, there's a lot of things that can happen in terms of manifestations. And what I, what, what I was reading is that so often Satan would come and counterfeit these things. Now, the fact that he, he does this just proves that they're authentic, right, because he can't create but what's interesting is that all this stuff would start happening, and sometimes people would say, let's shut the whole thing down, because that's what he wants to have take place. Rather than us being able to be a community that's healthy and can say, hold on, this right here, we appreciate the hunger, but this is not of the Lord, right? It's so important we have this, but we have to be able to say, look, if we let God move and touch lives, this stuff can happen. And it's not about a manifestation. That's not revival. What it really is, it's about what's happening on the inside. Right. So when they spoke in tongues, it's because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Honestly, be careful of the manifestation, even judging just of that. The real thing is, is there fruit of one who's been touched by the Lord? Right. That's what we really have to wait for. And sometimes that takes time after someone has encountered the Lord for us to be able to say, wait a minute, that was right or that was off. Here's, here's the other scripture. Uh, Proverbs 27.7. Proverbs 27.7. And I feel this is fitting for what we were talking about. Proverbs 27, 7 says this, The one who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Right. So the one who is full becomes a restaurant critic, 
And they go around criticizing everything, even the sweetness of the honeycomb they despise. Even in our context we're talking about today, even when God is moving mightily, they miss it. Like Michal, when David was dancing before the Lord, she got so offended at the king, losing all dignity before God, that she missed the ark was right there. All in her eyes she could see was flesh. And she was on the wrong side of the window and missed out on what God was doing in their midst. So the one who is full even loathes the, the sweetness of the honeycomb. But it says, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. In other words, the one who, who is hungry for God, even the things that can be bitter because we don't fully grasp them, we still find a sweetness in that. Amen? Yes. So let me, let me close with this testimony, and then uh, we'll have a time for those who like to stay around and pray. Um, but I, again, there's a book called Revival Fires that's been really, really awesome. There's so many uh, resources on this. But there was a revival in 1932. Has anyone ever heard of the Shantung Revival? Okay, it was in, it was in China. Uh, it's regarded as one of the greatest revivals in history. If you think about China where it is today with the explosion of the underground church, uh, there are many factors, but a big part is actually what happened in this revival. So it's regarded as one of the greatest revivals of all time, but, but most would say, at the very least, it's the greatest revival in the Baptist denominational history, which is really interesting because we honor all denominations, but as a whole, uh, in general, you would say that the Baptists would probably be more reserved to certain expressions of the Holy Spirit. And what was really amazing is, is that he was moving mightily uh, in unique ways in this, in, this, um, in this community, these missionaries. So what happened was 1932, I was reading uh, an excerpt from a man by the name of John Abernathy. Him and his wife, 30 years, served in China. Um, and they got to witness this incredible revival. And they uh, shared almost journal, journal-like, if you will. There was diaries. And I was reading an excerpt from this guy, John, uh, just talking about what had happened. And one of the things he was saying is, he was kind of explaining how it, how it took place. And, uh, and he mentioned that uh, he was there for 10 years, him and his wife, and they saw very little fruit. So they saw things happening. They saw lives being touched and genuinely following Jesus, but there was just something still lacking. They saw transformation, but not the transformation they longed for. They saw some churches starting, but it was still scattered. They saw joy, but not the joy of the Lord, not the oil of gladness smearing people. They, they saw conviction but not people really saying God I want to live a lifestyle of purity right and so they started to like really get a holy discontentment which I believe came from the Lord and there were two scriptures that marked them the great commission and Acts 1-8 and in the great commission what, what, what hit them these were a few Baptist missionary leaders in China is that Jesus said to his disciples all power in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and they recognized that they had been going but there was a power that was missing. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not seeing the power that we see in the scriptures. And then they went to Acts 1.8, and the Lord just, just like highlighted, blew it up in their hearts, where the Lord Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, and you will receive power from on high, and you will be my witnesses in all of the earth. And so this was really counter to some of the Baptist faith, but they said, we got to be praying for God to touch us with power. We need to pray for this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they began to pray and seek and they held prayer meetings, and what did you know? God came mightily. And these guys started getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and there was a lot that began to take place. So many details I'm missing, I'm keeping out. But people getting, I mean, salvations healed. People just flocking to, uh, to these gatherings. They couldn't contain what was happening. Uh, and this was all in the face of persecution, and the church, the Baptist church, was threatening to defund them a lot because what was happening was a counter to the core doctrine, right? And so they saw things like tongues, and they were like, this is getting weird for us. They saw things like um, people trembling before the Lord and falling under the power of the Holy Spirit. They saw uh, people weeping, they said. This was a big thing. People wept as if they lost a family member because they were coming under the weight of conviction of sin. It was, and they were giving things away. People were calling up their uh, um, people they had offended and wrong. One guy was reading, gave his high, uh, college diploma back because he cheated. He was a grown man. <laughs> But he cheated in college. He gave it back. They said the more this was happening, the Spirit of God kept moving stronger and stronger and stronger in their midst. One of them that really messed them up was laughter. <laughs> they said laughter broke out. Now, the reason why that messed them up is tongues was one thing. Now they got holy laughter. But they said in the Chinese culture, they're more reserved emotionally. So when they were coming to these gatherings and seeing these people laughing, singing, dancing, everyone was like, God is moving here. And these leaders, they said, God, we need to know, is this okay? Is this biblical? And the Lord gave them a scripture, Psalm 126.2, which says, our mouths were filled with laughter. 
our tongues with songs of joy. <laughs> and they just, after that, I said, all right, we're not turning back. And so long story short, I share all that to say this. John Abernathy, the guy who's writing this, him and many other leaders, Chinese leaders, were still not personally experiencing this move of God. And, uh, and they wanted to. They were there. I mean, they, they loved it, but they didn't really get touched themselves. And they realized it's because they were really critical to still what was happening. And they didn't just say, Lord, it's okay if my mind's offended. I'm, I'm going into this. And finally, one day, the guy John, this is what he said to the Lord when he finally got touched powerfully. He said, Lord, I must have this power no matter what the cost. If you want me to speak in tongues or if you want me to do anything else that I've despised in others, if it can be for your glory, let me do it. I must have this power without which I cannot go on. And then God touched this man's life as well. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. When we open up a time for prayer, it's okay if people need to leave, we understand. And kids, uh, we'd actually ask if someone's able to to grab the kids so they're not in there for a very long time with your children. Uh, especially if you have two parents, if one could grab them in just a moment. Uh, but I, what I feel led to do is I want to I wanna pray for the fear of man to be broken. I want to pray for the fear of man to be broken that no matter what comes, mockery, no matter if they make websites about you, <laughs> And say you're a heretic and all these things. Uh, we're going to press into what the Lord is doing here in this body, no matter the cost. And I, I want, um, man, the way there's many ways the fear of God is broken, but one of the consistent themes is we actually break the religious spirit, the fear of that, by being touched again by the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter was afraid to uh, stand up for Christ before even a slave girl, before Jesus's crucifixion. And yet, amazingly, after he was clothed and touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up before many critics who mocked him and was able to preach a gospel message to them. Peter, when, when, when told that he could be thrown into jail before Jesus' crucifixion, said, I'll never deny you, but wind up denying him. And yet now we see in the first few chapters, Peter was getting thrown into jail, and when he'd come out, he'd start preaching again. Amen. What happened? The Spirit of God clothed this man. Gideon. Gideon was a man full of fear. Gideon had issues with feeling inadequate, feeling like, who am I? I come from the weakest clan. How could God raise me up to be a deliverer? Gideon ultimately would have a victory of, of his army, which had 300 men versus 145,000. I think it's like 450 to 1 were the odds. This man in with boldness. What happened? All he did was lay fleeces before this and say, God, I know you kind of spoke and confirmed it, but do it again. And God would do it. He said, do it again. Well, it says in Judges 6.34, the Spirit of God came upon Gideon and clothed him. Something happened when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Do you know that King Saul, when he was anointed king, was found hiding among baggage? He didn't even come to the public ceremony. He was too afraid. He had terrible insecurity. But then it says in the next chapter that there was a war that broke out, and King Saul was found on the front lines full of faith in his heart. What happened there? Well, it says in, in, uh, in the scriptures right in between that that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and there was a righteous zeal that came up in his heart. So I want to pray that uh, the Spirit of the Lord would touch uh, every life here mightily. I'm going to pray for that corporately. And then if you would like to pray, if we have a prayer team, I'm not sure who exactly was put on it. But if you want to come up here and pray, you're more than welcome. And we're going to press in and, and pray for, uh, yeah, just change the break with the fear of man. Does that sound right? All right. If you need to go, we bless you, okay? So, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you are risen. We thank you, Lord, that you can turn cowards into mighty men of God, mighty women of God. And we thank you, God, for what you're doing in this house. But Lord, we, we take heed to your, your shepherding this morning. That there will be much that gets turned up when you show up here, Lord. And so right now, I pray that as we lay hands and pray... God, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, we're praying for a fresh filling this morning. And I'm praying that the, the chains of the fear of man are broken. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if anyone would like prayer, you're more than welcome to stay and worship.
You can kneel, stand. There's freedom here. Diane, would you like to pray? Maybe we'll get Diane, Vicky, and, and Don as well.